Ravenous. Part 2. Chapter 10. After another day searching her area of the forest, Elu tramps up the side of Clawfoot, stomach empty and angry. She refuses to feed it anything from the human area, nothing that a human may have touched, but she's pressing her fortune. The rainwater thickens the hair on her back, adding to her weight. Her shoulders slump with their burden. This hair, this body, it confines her, locks her here. Once, she was weightless. Once, she traveled free, but that was long ago. And when her sentence is over, she'll cease to be, unable to return to her true home and her true form. She sniffs, her stomach growls and red flashes across her vision. No, it's not possible. No animal has been close to her cave for years. She continues up the mountainside, her cave just beyond. The nearer she gets, the more fiercely the rage threatens. She trips over a bag, picks it up, and sniffs. Human. She carries it with her as she ascends. As she draws closer to her home, the smell of blood intensifies. She pauses, breathing deep. Her stomach twists and claws. She screams, letting out a ripping cry. She digs her fingers into the rocks, avoiding cutting her own flesh. She will not be overtaken. She will quell this ravenous urge. Elu pulls herself over the ledge, sees a light flickering within the cave. The smell of blood is strong, almost overpowering. Something waits for her. She creeps forward, takes a breath. Staying within the shadows, she peers inside. A male human sleeps next to the fire, arms curled tight around his chest, a rock hanging loose from one hand. A red-soaked bandage surrounds his head. Nausea surges upward and she almost lunges at him but holds herself back. She runs to a rock pile near the wall. The rocks scatter, banging loudly, one knocking the human on the leg. He jumps up, jaw dropping. You, you, you. He says words, but Elu can't understand. They all sound the same. His hands flap around and he crawls towards the cave opening. He reaches and picks up a rock. The hunger surges, but she inhales deep, pushing it down. No, she will not feed. She raises her hands, mimicking his gesture. Perhaps he will calm down. His pulse speeds up. The faster it goes, the more her mouth salivates. Breathe. Perhaps if she breathes, so will he. A human in her cave, never in 600 years, and she hasn't been this close to a human in over 300 years, definitely not one who's bleeding. A breeze blows in. The fire sways. The human's bandage shifts and falls, exposing hard, crusted blood against his skin. The scent of iron assaults her nose. She roars as the pain in her gut causes her to buckle forward. She grasps at her stomach. The human yells, jumps back and sends the rock in his hand flying towards her. She doesn't see it hit, only feels it smack and tear at her arm. She stumbles into the wall, tears in her eyes. A glimmer of her own blood forms and she presses her lips to the wound. Perhaps the human did not see. She breathes deeply and falls to her knees. Years ago, she figured out the key to quelling these urges, but it's been so long, her true form, a flicker of a clouded memory. Colors are now the only thing hinting at what she once was. She closes her eyes and breathes, breathes in, remembering blue, blue, the color of the sky on a day full of sunshine. She tastes blue, light and airy with salt at its edges. Once, she was blue. She breathes in, remembering green, green, the color of glimmering emeralds, green, tasting sweet and alive. Once, she was green. She breathes in, 
remembering purple. Purple the color of the mountains near the dusk of midwinter when all the sky has almost faded to black. Purple the rich taste of hope. Once she was purple. She opens her eyes. The human stands still, frowning. She stays on her knees and waits. Perhaps he will leave. He says some more words and then points at his mouth. Choose. She thinks he's asking about food. She shakes her head. He blinks, steps back. Then he gestures again, tipping his head back as if drinking. She points at the little basin she created where rainwater pools. It's just inside the entrance of the cave behind the human. He dashes to it and cups the water into his hands, gulping it down. She continues to breathe, remembering her colors. Blue of the sea, green of the forest, purple of the ether. That is who she is, was. Each time her eye catches the red bandage, her stomach turns. She remembers the bag in her hand, the bag of the human. Certain her own wound has stopped bleeding, she lifts her head and tosses the bag towards him. He glances at it, then at her. She points at the bag, then to the fallen bandage, makes a gesture of wrapping cloth around her head. He nods and picks up the sack. He rummages within and grabs a handful of seeds and tosses them into his mouth. Elu falls back as another surge of hunger hits. She breathes through it. The human looks up, eyeing his sack, and pulls out a bag of seeds and offers them to her. She hesitates. Could be a trap. He could grab her and pull her outside and push her off the mountain. Wait. She breathes and releases the panic. She slowly reaches out and takes the bags of seeds. He smiles and returns to his sack, retrieving a roll of white cloth and rebandaging his wound. Elu focuses hard on the sunflower seeds in her palm, the tastes in her mouth, the lessening pang of hunger. The human sits across from her, warming his hands by the fire. She passes back the bag, only a few handfuls left. He nods and takes them, eating. He says some more words, but she shakes her head, not understanding. Can you understand me? She asks softly. He jumps, places a hand on his heart. He speaks quickly, but she thinks he's laughing. She chuckles along with him. A light feeling spreads throughout her limbs, feeling she's forgotten existed. Outside, the storm rages on, the rain growing heavier, a wet wind whipping throughout the cave. Elu can taste the coming snow in the air. Not long now. They sit there, gesturing and laughing. She's not quite sure what he's saying or if he understands her, but a feeling of safety grows, and as long as she focuses on her breathing, the red haze keeps its distance. Finally, the fatigue of the day catches her. Good night, she says. She points to her bed of matted straw. She curls upon it, letting the fire fade out. You, 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 he responds. And soon she hears him snoring softly. Chapter 11. Cassius's foot catches a root and he sprawls forward. He hits the ground with a groan, his knife crashing into the bush. This god-awful forest with all its dirty fingers reaching everywhere, trying to drag him into the dirt. The sea never treated him so harshly. Even when the ship had gone down, still the sea had held him, rocked him back and forth, as if in an embrace. But this ludicrous forest is out to get him. Keep up, Cassius, Atrum shouts from ahead. Cassius stands and collects his knife. He charges forward, hacking at the vegetation that gathers ahead like claws, even though his brothers have just passed through here. Unbelievable. So correct me if I'm wrong, Cassius calls out, but we are following a map made from the word of a madman in the hopes of finding our father, who may or may not be in search of a long-lost cache of gold guarded by an evil man-eating beast. What's your point? 
Atrium barks. Cassius glances around. All the trees blend together, looking like a massive clump of green. Just that the man who was once a forerunner for Prime Barrister is now chasing fairy tales through the trees of a place with which he's completely unfamiliar. And he left the only guide who knows this area back in a horse trough, sleeping away his mean. Not too smart if you ask. Alder stands before him, grabs him by the arms. Shut up! I'm getting sick and tired of your smart mouth. If I have to hear another one of your insolent barbs, I'll shut you up so you can't talk for days. Cassius gulps, his arms burning from Aldor's grip. His brother drops him. His feet jar as they hit the ground. He rubs his right shoulder. That'll leave a bruise, he mumbles. Hey, Aldor, Atrium calls from ahead. Come see who it is. Aldor races ahead, Cassius sauntering behind, massaging his wounded arm. He hears a whinny. Then sees a brown stead. It's Becca, father's horse, Atrium grasps. Watch her, she's skittish. Alder points at her legs. Scratches deep in her thigh still bleed. Those aren't fresh. Perhaps she hasn't been apart from father long. Give her something to eat, Cassius nears the horse's head, puffing air into her face. She calms, snorts, nuzzles his neck. She looks like she hasn't eaten in days. Atrium rustles through his pack and gives a handful of dried berries to the mare. She licks them up and stomps her feet. That's it for now. You'll get more when we return home. She whinnies and steps forward. Hold it. Atrium grabs her rein and strokes her back. We need you to first lead us to father. Do you know where he is? She pulls back, but Atrium hangs on. Come on, Becca. Lead us there and I'll give you more fruit. He dangles a satchel containing the berries. She snaps at it, but he's quick and tucks it back into his bag. Let's go. Becca still resists Atrium's lead. Cassius sees his brother's knuckles turn white as his frustration grows. Here, let me. Cassius takes the rein, yanking it from Atrium. There, there, Becca. He whispers in her ear. It's okay. I know you don't like these woods. You miss openness and light. The salty breeze through your mane. But right now, we need you to help us find father. When we find him, we can go home. You can go back to the sea. Enough babble! Alder growls. Quiet! Cassius holds up a hand. Help us, Becca, please. The horse leans into his neck, snorts out two billows of air, and stomps her feet. She'll help us. Cassius turns to his brothers, both with their arms crossed. It's about bloody time. Elder marches forward, then stops. Well, lead the way then, horse master. Cassius ignores his brother's barb, holds on to Becca's rein as she turns and takes them back up the hill. Well done. Atrium reaches Cassius and pats him on the back. I didn't know you could do that. Mother taught me. Cassius stares ahead, the light of the moon leading the way. Ah, right. Atrium hikes beside him, steady in pace. The vegetation here has turned brown, almost black, rotten and decayed, no green in sight. Cassius listens. Aside from their footsteps and Becca's snorts, he hears nothing. No birds or squirrels or other animals rustling. This entire forest sounds dead. Becca starts stamping at the base of a steep slope. Her head twists side to side. Calm, Becca, Cassius soothes. What is it? What do you see? He looks up. The mountain is draped in moonlight, but he sees only stars and rocks. Becca pulls at him, nipping his shoulder. Ouch! What's that? Elder points to a black shadow high up on the mountain's edge. A tree or ledge? Cassius squints his eye. The black shadow is as small as his fingernail. Elder shakes his head. It's moving, climbing. Father, 
Atrium charges up the steep slope. A boom of thunder crashes. Becca rears up with a cry, throwing Cassius against the rock. His breath knocked out of him. He watches the horse turn and bolt back to the trees. That's got to be the way, Atrium shouts. Come on. A howl echoes off the rocks, a scream full of agony and pain. Cassius turns cold. The rain pours down. Chapter 12. Artruvius pretends to snore. Here he is in a cave with a creature he's never seen before, sharing water, food, and shelter. Incredible. If this is the black devil that Slefan spoke of, surely the man is mistaken. Perhaps lying in order to keep people away. For this creature, as large and foreboding as she appears to be, and she's unquestionably a she, for that detail is correct, a very tall and hairy woman-like she, she does not seem to be harmful. Surely no man-eating beast. He peers at her through slitted eyes. She seems more like a lost and lonely child, curled up in a ball on her bed, just like his Sophie or Tierna when they'd been small. Slethen had been correct on so much, on the directions, the cave, the creature. There's just one thing missing. The gold. Artruvius waits. It must have been an hour at least, but he's certain the creature is sleeping. He creeps onto his feet, the fire crackling, cloaking his footsteps. If there's gold, he'll find it. He grabs his torch from his sack and lights it with the embers. The torch sparks. He watches the creature, but she doesn't stir. He turns and heads towards the back of the cave. Rain cascades upon the mountaintop, while Artruvius steps into the dark shadows of the cave. Lots of rocks jutted and carved like tables and chairs. So human, this creature, yet nothing like. He looks at each crack and crevice, but the creature's needs seem simple. Just the stone to sleep on and lay her head. Tucked in the back behind a large boulder, the flicker of his torch touches on gold. He's found it. Glancing at the sleeping being, seeing her body move with deep breaths, he moves closer to the treasure. He spots it and frowns. A chest made of wood with a golden lock. Small, the size of a lapdog. Well, it may yet hold more lucrative treasure within. He picks it up and places it on the boulder, inspects the lock. He doesn't see a key. Perhaps he need just stow it away and head down the mountain. Then he can open it at the bottom. He grabs the lid, aiming to place it in his rucksack. When the box opens, well, that's much simpler. He holds up the torchlight, hoping for more glimmering gold. His shoulders sag. Again, nothing golden in this box except the lock. But the contents catch his eye. Just two items. First, a locket seeming to be made of copper. The name Bella Rose, carved on the front. In a design hearkening back to the decollage era. Back in Darton City, Artrivius's merchant fleet had specialized in antique manufactures and designs. But he's never seen a copper locket from that era before. And its edges charred with black, as if it had been close to a flame. Frowning, he opens it. A picture painted in gold filigree and soft eyes of a young girl with golden red hair. A lovely lass, Bella Rose. Odd that the creature possesses such a thing. He places it back into the chest. His gaze rests on the second item. Curious, he picks up a doll made from dried bark and tied with strips of red cloth, like long curly hair. A locket and doll, and a creature that treasures them both. Whatever Slepin saw, this creature is not his black devil and there's no gold here. Gently, he returns the box, tiptoes to the mouth of the cave. 
Though the fire is now embers, he can still feel a radiating warmth coming from the absorbed heat within the walls. The creature stirs, her back still towards him, and makes a noise. She may be snoring, she may be laughing, it's hard to tell them apart. The sound that comes out sounds like Elu. Elu, that is what he will call her. He turns and sits at the entrance, staring at the curtain of water pouring down. He hugs his jacket closer and rubs his arms. No gold. Another failed expedition. Solidifying what he is. A failure. He's failed his sons, his daughters. He's nothing to give them, nothing to call their own. Stupid decision to send the fleet through a storm. His devastation at the complete loss of his company. At the loss of his wife. Calliope's face fills his mind. Her yellow hair curling in rings around her face. Red circles blushing on her high cheekbones. A smile that spread everywhere she went. He misses her with everything inside him. And now he's failed her too. Tears fall in streams, his eyes cast down. And he sees red just outside the cave, red amidst the gray stone. He leans closer, a rose growing all the way up here. Nothing growing for miles below and yet here grows a rose. A smile sneaks up his face. Calliope had always said, when you think you're lost, look for the beauty, and you will find your way. He wipes his tears and glances up, his wife's face a vision in his mind. The storm goes almost as quickly as it came. The thundering rain transforms into drips, and the water streams near the cave opening shrink and fade. The clouds part, and the moon shines once again, casting its glow into the heart of the mountain. Artruvius always loved the moon, the shadows and shapes seeming always to change. Something bright glows behind him. He snaps his head around and sees a golden glow. He frowns. The glow comes from behind the sleeping Elu. Of course, the gold isn't hidden in the cave. It's close to the creature. He creeps forward. He has to see, has to know. He's close, only a foot away. This is the closest he's ever been to her, but he just needs one look. He peers over her side, but he only sees the mat. She holds nothing lays on nothing else. But still, the golden light glows. He steps back, glancing at the moon. Trick of the eyes. Elu mumbles in her sleep, scratches her shoulder, and rolls onto her back. The glow brightens. Artruvius searches. This is impossible. Why can't he... Her hand falls from her chest and lands on the ground. The hand he'd hit with the rock. The small wound pulses with glimmering gold. Chapter 13. She sees blue and green and purple dancing all around. She looks at her arms and legs, and she's a kaleidoscope of color, lighter than air. She twists and dances on her own breeze, her movement her own, her flight no one else's, light, effortless, free. All around her, light shimmers. Others like her move and dance and shift with each thought, each movement, Always different, always changing, always expanding. Waiting for the call to ferry the souls in her charge to the next realm. Each moment is divine ecstasy. Her being in total unity and oneness. Her colors rich and vibrant. The call draws her up, up, up into the outer world. The world where she's just a traveler, a passerby. And thus still retains her weightlessness and transparency. Only the beckoning soul may see her. 
Her eyes are blurry in the outer world, but she doesn't need them here. She feels her way, the soul drawing her near. She senses the transforming creature. A rabbit needs ferrying today. She seeks and finds it. When it takes its last breath, she envelops it and welcomes its soul. They pass together back through into the inner realm, into the rainbow of color and light. Blackness jars her vision. The rabbit is gone. Had it been there at all? Light shines bright and blinding. Her body's weightless and floating. She's still in the outer world, but she hears things. Voices. Humans. Not her vocation, not the souls in her charge. The forest around her is ablaze. She senses the heat burning through and past her. She hears the screams. Spinning, twisting, she searches for the wayfarers. Where are they? The single soul screams within the flames, beckons to be carried on, but nothing comes. She opens her mind, expands, but something blocks the path. Something stops the wayfarers from leaving the inner world, and something stops her from returning. She shifts until she's above the forest. She hears the trees burn and scream before their spirits renew themselves. Fire is a part of their creation, but she hears another scream, the human scream, a child. Elu breezes into the flames, twisting, spinning, dancing in its glorious red light, and through the blaze, she sees a small female human curled in a ball under a wide crackling oak. Her rose-colored hair lies in curls down her back, smoking at the edges. It's not her calling, not her vocation. The small human screams. And Elu shoots forward, surrounding the human as the wood crackles and explodes all around. She cannot stop the death. She cannot change the child's fate. Yet, she can ferry her soul. Only she doesn't ferry humans. The inner realm may send her back. The child's screams fade as her life slips out. Elu thinks quickly. She must do something before the child takes her last breath. She looks around. All the plants are eaten by flames, except one. A single rose survives buried half beneath a boulder. A rose. Elu's a transformer. That's what she does. She transforms the souls to their next chapter. She'll transform the human into a rose. Elu magnifies, absorbs in the light from all around. The fire intensifies her own light. She's a prism. Colors ricochet in every direction within her circle of light, as the circle surrounds the child. The small one's chest shudders, her last breath taken, and Elu transforms. With everything within, she sees and believes the shift before her. The human body dissolves as a rose grows in its place, before fading and withering in the explosive heat, and the soul of the child floats, nestling close to Elu. Elu dives down, driving towards the inner world. The soul in her charge quivers and shakes. She soothes it with the song of her colors, weaving the blue, green, and purple lights around the soul until it calms. Then they slam, jarring the barrier still there. She cannot get in. The soul cannot pass. Elu presses, but it feels like a darkness is sucking out her light. It burns like deep ice. She darts back. She feels a pole up and down and in and out. No idea is what's happening. She hangs onto the soul as she spirals and splits and feels everything rip and tear apart. Heaviness spreads through her, weighs her down, holds her captive. A pain surges through her like she's completely torn in two, screaming. She awakens. Chapter 14. The pouring rain ceases all at once. Cassius frowns, staring at the instantly present moon, full and shining bright against the mountaintop. 
Still, far off the ledge, she can't tell what lies ahead. Does that seem odd to you? Cassius turns to Atrium, climbing at his side. They're connected by a line of rope. The rope then joins Atrium with Aldor, who follows up behind, a permanent scowl on his face. From all the years scurrying up the yardarm, away from his scheming older brothers, Cassius is proficient at climbs, which doesn't seem to sit too well with Aldor. Yes, it does, Atrium frowns. I've never seen a storm shift so quickly. We best be on our guard. Hours pass. Yes, it does. Atrium frowns. I've never seen a storm shift so quickly. We best be on our guard. Hours pass. They're climbing slow due to the effects of the heavy rain. As much as his brothers tease him for his upkeep of his favorite jacket, the blue brocade keeps Cassius warm, even with the icy air at the higher elevation. What if we don't find him, Atrium? Cassius glances up at his older brother. Or what if something bad's happened? Cassius pushes away the thought of his mother. Don't talk like that, Atrium whispers. Keep your head up. Keep thinking we'll find him, alive. Cassius swallows, blinking away the image of a body floating away on the waves of the storm. He focuses on a different thread. But what of this beast? What if we find it and it's real? Are you both ready to stand up and defend my honor? Will you shut up? Aldor snarls. This climb is difficult enough without your incessant yammering. Hush. Atrium freezes. Stop. Quiet. Cassius pauses, listening, not sure what his brother hears. Atrium's eyes dart around, up and down. There. Did you hear it? Cassius shakes his head. The creaking, Aldor whispers. A mountain is moving. Cassius feels a shake. Rocks trickle down. Small ones at first. Then bigger. Uh, Atrium, uh, what's your brilliant plan now? Hang on, Atrium shouts. He grabs Cassius's arm. Cassius's heart races as he feels the mountain shifting beneath their hold. A loud scream from the mountain's peak slashes through the clear air. The rocks shift and twist, turning into mud. Cassius loses his hold, Atrium and Aldo the same. Together, with a loud yell, they plunge down the mountain. Chapter 15. She sees him, the human, standing above her. Why is he so close? He'll get burned. It's not safe. Her head fuzzy. She shakes it. No, just a dream, a nightmare. Not real. This human is alive. He holds a knife in his hand. She freezes. He stares at her, shaking, glances at her arm. She looks down. Blood. Her cut bleeds. She brings it to her mouth, sees again the knife. Gold drips along its edge. He did this. The rage fills her every cell, every limb. She feels the red, smells his blood steaming into her, charging her veins. Mouth watering, she rears up, roars, whips her arms around, throws anything she can grab at the dead and fire. Her bed, rocks, leftover food. They hit the logs and black ash scatters. Claws dig into the wall, tearing, cutting the stone. She sees the human through the red haze, on his knees, hands shaking. She forces herself back, fighting stone, rearing up with screams. She pounds her fist upon the rock table, smashes it to a thousand pieces. The pull towards him is great, greater than anything she's felt in 666 years. She grabs her hair, yanks hard, and drives herself outside. Stumbling just beyond the cave, she falls to her knees, heaving, gasping for breath, for air untainted by his smell. Three hundred years. For three hundred years, not a drop of blood has passed her lips. Not animal, not human. She'd sworn to herself. Never again. In her mind, memories flash. The fire, the burning wrench from her formless essence to harden mortality. And the hunger. 
She remembers. It was real. So soon after her change, her body took over, finding food wherever it lay. Berries and leaves wouldn't suffice. She needed more. Her hunger, a deep ache. First, she tasted the rabbit, her former charge. A bit of her old self cringed at the dead creature. The smell of its blood and its flesh overwhelmed her. But soon the animals learned of her existence, and they fled. Only humans remained. After 300 years of feasting on humans, young and old, she awoke from her monstrous state. The hunger never lessened, just faded like a wraith, only to return more intensely the following day. But on the day she awoke, disgusted at her state, blood dripping from her fingers and mouth, she knew this was not who she was. She promised to put it behind her, to never taste flesh again. Three hundred years. Now this human has come, making her blood seeth, cutting her flesh. And the beast is back, knocking at her door. End of part two.